It's Tuesday, June 29th, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today, we have an interview with Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Wall Street Journal and the host of WSJ at Large with Jerry Baker on the Fox Business Network. I spoke with Jerry about his career as a journalist, his tenure as editor-in-chief of The Wall Street Journal, and how journalism has changed over the course of his adult life. Jerry, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's always interesting to chart the path of an extraordinary career. Yours led to serving as the editor-in-chief of what is unarguably, I think, one of the world's most important newspapers. At the start of it, you graduated from Oxford with distinction. Presumably, you could have gone any number of ways. What led you to journalism? Uh, Well, I didn't go straight into journalism, actually. I hadn't really got any journalism background at university. I I was fascinated by, always completely obsessed with news, politics, current affairs. But my primary ambition back when I was a very young man was to go into politics, actually. Um, I was active in politics at Oxford. And then after a couple of years at the Bank of England, I then actually worked in a political party, a long dead political party in Britain called the Social Democratic Party, and actually stood for election for them. But I quickly realized after a few years, sort of in my mid-20s, that I wasn't really cut out for politics. I think I, I didn't like the kind of intellectual compromises that are necessary in politics. You really do have to toe the party line. And while I completely understand the importance and the need for that, it wasn't really something I felt comfortable doing. So I was kind of at a loose end, really. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And um, kind of out of the blue, I applied for a job in a television company in Britain, in London, as a researcher on a television current affairs program. They wanted someone who had kind of an economics background, but also an interest in other things. And to my surprise, I got the job and I worked for them to start with. I got a good training in sort of basic journalism and in TV there. Then I went from there to the BBC. And as much as I enjoyed television, I liked writing. I found that writing was probably my strength and I really wanted to focus on writing. And so I went to the Financial Times and went there, Tokyo for a few years, then Washington. So long-winded answer to your question, John, you know, what drove me into journalism was <laughs> a positive and a negative impulse. The positive was fascination for the news, politics, economics, especially trying to establish a deeper understanding of the trends that drive these big issues. And the kind of negative impulse was my first route had sort of been cut off by my own kind of disillusionment. And so I found myself trying to find other ways in which to satisfy my desire to at least interpret the world, if not to improve it. How did you come to be offered the job of editor-in-chief of the journal? So again, so to sort of pick up that thread, I was at the Financial Times for quite a long while, for about 10 years. And really, it came through my connection with Robert Thompson and Rupert Murdoch. I actually took Robert Thompson's job. He'd been my predecessor in Tokyo for the Financial Times. Robert is an absolutely brilliant Australian-born journalist. He rose through the ranks of the Financial Times very quickly, and he was hired by Rupert Murdoch to edit the Times of London in the early 2000s. Robert, very kindly then, having gone to the Times of London as editor, offered me a job at the Times of London to sort of run the US coverage and write about the US for the Times, and I did that. And then in 2007, Rupert Murdoch made his famous acquisition of of Dow Jones and the journal. And he appointed Robert as publisher and then actually as editor of the journal. And Robert, again, asked me to come along to the journal. I 
became Robert's deputy when he was the editor of the journal. And then I succeeded Robert in 2013 when Robert moved on to even greater things to basically run News Corp, which was the company that was formed after the old News Corp was split into two. So I became editor that way. And I think that first day, it probably just really struck me for the first time, you know, what an enormous responsibility is. Uh, you know, it, it is being an editor of a newspaper is, is, is sort of the closest thing to a kind of authorized sort of dictatorship. Um, really, I think that there is in probably outside politics. I mean, you have enormous autonomy as editor. You are responsible, especially for a great newspaper like the Wall Street Journal, which has a huge reach, large number of staff, enormous circulation. You do have remarkable ability to influence and to drive the coverage. And I think it was probably a slight sense of awe on that day, realizing that, you know, that this was that as editor, you are a you have the tremendous burden of responsibility and the responsibility for all the people who work for you. And you take that very seriously, but also just the tremendous opportunity that you have to really drive the coverage. Now, I should say that the journal is full of incredibly and was then and is today full of incredibly talented people. So they didn't need a lot of direction from me. But I think it was when it really dawned on me the opportunity there there was. So when you took over, I assume that part of it was just to continue what you and Robert had been doing in the previous years. But did you have an idea of how you would sort of reshape the coverage in the journal around specific topics? Yeah, I should say again, as you said, exactly as you said, I, I had been Robert's deputy for four years. And what I should say here is, of course, that when Rupert acquired the journal and put Robert in charge of it, the objective was to effect, you know, some pretty significant change. I mean, the journal had always been a unique and distinctive paper, which had excelled at doing, you know, profound, in-depth investigation, reporting, analysis of big issues. And we wanted to preserve all of those strengths, but also make it more of a newspaper. I think there was a sense, which I shared very much, that the paper, while it did these great in-depth stories on a range of subjects, didn't really cover the news in a completely comprehensive way. And I think that there was a sense that we needed to do a better job if the journal was really going to thrive, to do a better job of covering news on a daily, and obviously, you know, we were well into the web era on a kind of almost minute by minute basis. So the aim was to, if you like, sort of increase the metabolism, really injecting some pace and energy into it, covering the news, reporting the news, breaking stories, especially in the financial and business world, but also providing that immediate combination of reporting and analysis on the range of stories. So my objective when I took over as editor was really, to be quite honest, was really to just try and to continue to embed some of those changes. So I don't think we can do an interview with you without talking about Rupert Murdoch. During your tenure as editor-in-chief, the Wall Street Journal published the expose of a company called Theranos, which, if I'm not mistaken, Rupert had a 100 or $120 million investment in. When you, <laughs> when you read the early copy of those stories, was it just like a live IED on your desk? Or, I mean, <laughs> how did you, uh, let's use the word, navigate that particular story? There are so many caricatures of Rupert that, that get him completely wrong. One complete failure that people have in understanding Rupert Murdoch is he's got an extraordinary broad range of interests, of personal, intellectual, cultural uh, interests, and financial interests too. And I'd never heard of this company, Theranos, and Elizabeth Holmes, the founder of it. He told me sometime in 2015, just in a conversation, that he was fascinated by it. This, this was 
for those who don't know the story, this was a company founded by this woman, Elizabeth Holmes, who believed that she could change the nature of blood testing through an right. introduction of a scientific method where you wouldn't need to do a full blood draw with a needle the normal way that you do when you take the blood, but you could do it with essentially a finger prick, right. draw just a very small amount of blood. So, you know, it would be much more comfortable, much less uh, painful, uh, much more efficient, all of those things. Anyway, she came up with this method and like a lot of people, like almost everybody, Rupert was 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 highly impressed and, and did invest his own money in it. I just, you know, filed that away in the back of my mind as, as one does and been a lot of coverage of it. We hadn't done very much coverage, but there'd been a lot of very positive coverage in all the other media about it. And then really not long after that, a few months later, my investigations editor, he said, oh, we've got this very interesting story about this company, Therapy which uh, we think there's something really profoundly questionable about the claims that are being made. And actually, our reporter thinks that there's nothing to them and that this could be a pretty sort of big fraudulent story. So I thought, oh, yeah, interesting. So I had no idea at that point how much money Rupert had invested. In fact, I didn't actually know that he'd invested any money. I kind of guessed he had because he, you know, he right. He'd expressed interest in it, but I didn't know he'd invest any money. But I did know that he had an interest in this company, both a personal and a kind of larger interest in this company. And so my first reaction was, you know, oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't say that, of course, to the investigations editor. But, you know, this went on and then the investigation went on. And I have to say to Rupert's great credit, there was no effort to influence me, to steer the coverage, to quash it or anything like that. And in the end, as we know, late 2015, you know, we did publish the stories, a succession of stories, which led ultimately to the complete collapse of the company. I mean, what did go on, which obviously I knew about at the time, but which has been made public, was that Elizabeth Holmes and a very uh, well-paid and quite famous crowd of lawyers led by David Boys, but Elizabeth Holmes personally made a very, very, very intensive lobbying effort with Rupert to get him essentially to lean on me to kill the story. I mean, that's, you know, yes, right. she sent him emails saying we were lying, the reporting was wrong, the reporter was, you know, had a, had a vendetta or a grudge or something like this. And to Rupert's great credit, I have to say, I mean, I, I didn't know uh, about that at the time. And I knew that she was, you know, occasionally Rupert would say, oh, Elizabeth Holmes has spoken to me or whatever, but I didn't know she was trying to get Rupert to fundamentally kill the story. And he and, and he didn't. I mean, he, at no point did he say, you know, don't do this. And the stories were published. And I believe Rupert lost all his money because the company uh, went, went downhill. Back to the sort of caricatures of Rupert Murdoch, there's this kind of Manichaean impression that I think sort of the world's media and, you know, unfortunately, a large part of the world's population has that Rupert sits there kind of, you know, masterminding coverage, telling his editors what to do and objecting if and telling them not to do certain things and all of it designed to improve prove, you know, his own wealth and fortune or promote his ideological objectives. And of course, it's a, it's a ridiculous, ridiculous caricature. And I think that you, you couldn't find a better test case of Rupert's willingness to let his newspapers follow the news and pursue the news wherever it leads, even to the point of it costing him <laughs> tens of millions of dollars. I shouldn't laugh. But you know, I think he understood that the strength of the journal lies in its in the reputation it has for independent journalism. If that right. were jeopardized, if that were in any way undermined, the journal's reputation would be gone forever. And, and I would say, you know, one of the things that still distinguishes the journal even more today is that independence. And, you know, in an age when most news organizations, I'm afraid to say, have become uh, practice advocacy journalism, mostly ideological advocacy, whether it's, you know, mostly on the left, vast majority of it on the left. The journal, I think, stands alone in being genuinely independent, 
still striving to maintain those virtues of objectivity and fairness. And, you know, it's got Rupert Murdoch to thank for that. And that Theranos story demonstrates that, as I say, better than anything I could possibly claim. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back to talk more with Jerry Baker. Welcome back to News Items. During your tenure, Donald Trump is elected president. I don't think the journal was that much different than the others in thinking that that would not occur. And that becomes just a massive story upon which uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times, for lack of a better phrase, adopt bias as a business model and drive digital subscriptions by joining, quote, the resistance, end quote. I mean, I know this is a bit of a caricature, but not much. So tell me, given the pressure to amp up digital subscriptions as print advertising goes down, how did you navigate the Trump story and how did you prevent the journal from, quote, joining the resistance, end quote? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's an odd thing. I mean, on the one hand, to me, and again, maybe Maybe this isn't true. Maybe history will judge this poorly. But but when Donald Trump was elected, yeah, it was a surprise. And yes, he was unorthodox and we unconventional. And we understood all of that. But it never occurred to me that we should not approach the Trump presidency in exactly the same way that we would approach any other presidency. I, I mean, and, and I say that because I do think a large number of the most influential journalists and editors in this country decided quite consciously that Trump was some kind of a unique threat to democracy. I, I well remember, I think it was David Remnick, uh, the editor of The New Yorker, wrote an editorial around then saying that the country had entered a state of emergency, that Donald Trump represented such a threat to the foundations of American democracy, that his, his language, the things he talked about, the way he talked about immigrants, the way he talked about women, what was seen as his kind of noxious populism was such a threat that journalists should abandon the principles of objectivity and treating this as a just another president, a, a different one and a very unusual one, but another president and should actively see it as their role effectively to undermine and to bring him down. And it just that, that just never occurred to me. And that there were people on the staff of the Wall Street Journal, and obviously I won't name any names, who did clearly share that view. I remember vividly in the days after the election, having a little delegation of people, uh, one particular person, come to me and to say, because I'd made some statement after the election internally that, you know, to the effect of what I just said, which is that, you know, this is an unusual election, it's an unusual result, and he's going to be an unusual president, but nothing changes in terms of the way the journal approaches this. We'll cover him, we'll explore, as we had done during the campaign, some of the scandals around him, we will investigate him, we will investigate his presidency, we'll interrogate it thoroughly, but we will be fair. And I did have a little delegation of people coming to me and saying, you don't understand, this is kind of, and I literally had someone say to me, this is Germany 1933, and you know Hitler has come to power, and you can't do this, you can't be objective about Hitler, Hitler represents evil, and Trump represents evil, and we have to join the resistance in effect. Maybe history will judge me unkindly, but I just thought, First of all, I thought, no, I disagree. And secondly, I thought, what would that do to us if we did? I mean, you know, what will that do to the journal's reputation? Trump, in my view, will come and go and the journal will still be here. But if we have decided that we have to take this kind of activist role and cease to provide an attempt to uh, an objective view of, of the news, then I think we'll have lost trust. We'll have lost our core 
mission. So yeah, there was pressure to do it. There was certainly pressure from elsewhere. And where it became particularly strong, obviously, was in those early weeks and months after the election and into the administration, when particularly the Russia story came along. And if I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I am proud of the fact that despite unbelievable hostility, some internal, a lot external for not being as aggressive, supposedly in exposing the Russia collusion story as other news organizations, I got personally article after article written about me in other news organizations saying that journal staff were extremely unhappy that we were not as aggressive in pursuing this story. While the Times, the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and all these other news organizations were exposing, you know, Trump as a Russian asset. And I owe a lot of gratitude to a couple of the more senior reporters and editors of the journal who actually, I will never forget in those early days, I said, look, what are we doing on this story? What, you know, what are we going to find out? How serious is this collusion story? How much collaboration was there between Trump? And what, what about, remember the famous Steele dossier? And I can remember one of my most senior reporters with real expertise in this field said, I just don't think it's true. I just don't think the evidence is there. You know, sure, the Russians tried to influence the election, but I think this story that you read in the other papers every single day that Trump was collaborating and Trump's people were collaborating and it was all, you know, essentially Trump was there, was put there willingly as a kind of Russian plant. I just don't think that's true. And so so we we looked at the story, we reported some aspects of the story, but we never went into the tank in the way that almost every other news organization did. And I'm very proud of that. You know, we were right not to get carried away with that story. And I'm very pleased that we did, that we resisted the resistance. Before we get to wokery, which you've written about quite frequently and persuasively, I've been thinking about what you've written about the Biden administration. And my take on the Biden administration is that Joe Biden was nominated by the Democratic Party because he was the candidate believed to be the one most likely to defeat Trump. There was no ideological agenda. It was just, he's the guy who can beat Trump. And that he was elected president because he wasn't Trump, basically. So he takes the oath of office and essentially he's fulfilled his mandate. I absolutely agree with your analysis of the election. I think that's exactly why Biden won. I think it's why he won the primary. And I think, as you say, it's why he won the general and you know explicitly rejected kind of an ideological agenda if you recall multiple times during the campaign saying you know hey come on man i'm you know i'm not some sort of progressive socialist or whatever what is your take on the biden administration is there a larger i mean from biden himself is there a larger platform or is this just stuff that the left is you know plugging into his presidency and it's coming out as a quote program end quote Look, my view of Biden, you know, anybody who gets elected president of the United States has got extraordinary talent. We have to first of all give them that. So so whatever I say shouldn't be taken in, you know, as any in any way sort of demeaning criticism of Biden. But I do think Biden's career has been defined by a complaisance, if you like, with his party. That is, I don't think he's ever led the party, you know, I don't think he's ever really taken a kind of a particularly strong stand on actually any issue, right. you know, in defiance of his party, it's very much in the mainstream of the party and it's very much been driven by the party. And you can go back to his days on the Judiciary Committee as a senator and his days and his days in foreign relations, his attitude towards things like foreign policy, which of course he claimed great credit for, voting, you know, against the Iraq war in 1991 under George H.W. Bush and then voting for the Iraq war in 2003 under George W. Bush. I mean, I think those polls almost capture for you very well what Joe Biden is like. That is, he was with the majority of his party in 1991, unlike some senators who did, you know, Al Gore, most notably, in 1991, supported George Bush 
senior in that war. A handful of Democratic senators did that. That took real courage. That took real principle. And then again in 2003, you know, when the vast majority of his party went along with George W. Bush's war, that, that to me almost helps to capture Biden. That is that he is a, he's a party man. You find the center of gravity of the, of the Democratic Party and you'll find Joe Biden there. So I think that helps to explain what's happened in the first six months of the Biden administration, despite the fact that one, he didn't campaign as progressive himself personally, and two, that he won incredibly narrowly. The Democrats won incredibly narrowly. I mean, he won you know, reasonably solidly, but it was much narrower than many people expected. He won only by four percentage points. You know, it was a, by, by historical standards, it was a close presidential election. And I think because the momentum in the Democratic Party has been well to the left, and you know, driven by anti-Trump to some extent, but driven also by these new progressives, you know, whether it's Elizabeth Warren on economics or people like AOC and others on sort of social and cultural issues. And of course, the radicalization of the last year and the post-George Floyd killing and the Black Lives Matter thing, all of that has driven, all that's the propulsive force in the Democratic Party. And Joe Biden, like a cork, you know, bobbing along on the water, just as happy to sort of go along in that direction as he pretty well has throughout his entire career. So I think you are seeing, I think it is a attempt anyway at a very radical progressivism, whether in cultural matters and, you know, some of the pronouncements that they've done. Immigration, I think is, you know, I, I don't think enough is being written about immigration right now. I think you basically do have, you know, a, a democratic party, the bulk of which sort of favors open borders, quite frankly, I think is very skeptical about the very idea of immigration control. Uh, Biden, I think, understands the politics of that are, would potentially ruin us, but he's being pushed along in that direction by this very progressive element of the party, which is pushing everybody in the same direction. And I think that's where Biden's going. And I think that, you know, again, whether it's on the extraordinary fiscal plan that they've come up with, uh, a lot of it's a lot of it's going to hit the buffers. Obviously, it already has to some extent. Clearly, the infrastructure plan is being dramatically scaled back. That's not probably going to happen, and some of these other measures too. But but I don't think there's any doubt that the ambition is there. And I don't think it comes from Biden. I think it comes from Biden's willingness to go along um, because that's what he's always kind of done. Right, right. I would urge listeners to read Jerry's columns about wokery, critical race theory, and this new culture, I guess you would call it, uh, that has uh, sort of come to the fore in the last couple of years. But anyway, I, I wanted to ask you, given what's happened, given the rise of the woke, do you see a point where the where the onslaught will be turned back, or are we just going to see more and more of this in academia and the media and so on and so forth? To be honest, I I I, I veer between despair and hope on, on this topic. There was a great movie I remember from back, back in the nineteen seventies or eighties featuring John Cleese, and I'll, I'll spare you the details of the plot. But there's just a wonderful line in it at one point where he says, he turns to his. Uh, interlocutor and says, you know, it's not the despair that I can't stand. I can take the despair. It's the hope that I can't stand. <laughs> so, so when I'm so when I'm really gloomy, uh, I'm hopeful, and when I'm happy, I'm despairing. So, um, I mean, I, I think I think where I'm coming to on this, and I said this in my column this week, I do think there's good evidence that this is not popular. This attempt to rewrite American history, to reacculturate Americans to a fallen world in which they are guilty of the greatest sins, you know, the, this essentially that America is a fundamentally racist, oppressive society, which I think is nonsense. I mean, of course, America's dreadful, appalling history uh, with regard to race, of course. And I also acknowledge, by the way, that a country that within my lifetime, 
large parts of this country where where black people were not allowed to drink at the same water fountain or go to the same schools as white people. That is a country that does have profound, profound societal challenges, and no one should deny that. But I do think, again, the beauty of America and someone who's come to America here, perhaps something I particularly appreciate, is that America has overcome so much of those profound ills and sins uh, and flaws by advancing the ideals on which it was founded. This is, to me, is the problem here with critical race theory, you know, wokery and all that stuff, is that America has overcome, not all of them by any means, they're still profound problems. But but the way in which America has advanced is by adhering to the ideals that America stands for, not by rejecting them. And I think that is, you know, that's the fundamental problem. And by the way, and I think the vast majority of Americans get that. The danger that we have is the media bubble is now so enormous and so monochromatic, if I can mix my metaphors a bit, that people are just not seeing what people outside in the rest of the country are thinking. And so so when the New York Times does its 1619 project and says America really was founded in 1619 with the first slave ships, and it's that that's defined America throughout its history, yeah, you know, the kind of all the crowd and, you know, journalists all nod in agreement and progressives in business and, and the, the academy and elsewhere nod enthusiastically in agreement not understanding and, and the voices are not out there of the of the frankly hundreds of millions of americans very sensible decent americans who just think that's absolute balderdash and you're starting to see that come through whether it's these elections that you've seen in some places where where sort of proponents of critical race theory have been roundly rejected i think you are starting to see some kind of intelligent sensible sort of mainstream democrats starting to say hold on where this is crazy. I mean, James Carville, you know, coming out and saying, what are we talking about here? By the way, I hear from a lot of academics who tell me that it really is that bad. You know, I know there's a sense that we on the right tend to overstate it. And of course, actually colleges are, you know, they're still great places where there's freedom, intellectual freedom. I get a lot of, a lot of emails from a lot of people saying, no, it really is that bad. And it, and they are scared to speak out um, against this stuff because they will be labeled racist and white supremacists and they will be marginalized. Or if the revolutionaries have their way, they will be canceled and eliminated. So it is bad. And when you have that kind of a grip on the institutions of the culture that the, that this crowd has, whether it's academia, the media, increasingly corporations, it's a problem. The sliver of hope that I cling to is that the vast majority of Americans think this is nonsense and they're disturbed by it. And I think there might be a developing backlash, which will take electoral form possibly, but will take a, perhaps a broader cultural form too. Yeah. I'm afraid we have to cut it off here. But Jerry, thank you very, very much for doing this. It's been a pleasure and really, truly interesting. So thanks for doing it. John, thank you. And again, congratulations to News Items and all you do. I'm I'm an enormous uh, admirer and consumer of your great wisdom. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. This podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Sheila Smith about Japan's preparations for the upcoming Olympics in Tokyo, the country's efforts to contain COVID-19, and the diet elections this fall. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer was Billy Gardella. <laughs>